So as we move forward in uh, Luke 16, as was just read for you, just by way of keeping what we do this morning in 14 through 17 in context with the beginning of 16, I just want to once again remind you how this text makes sense. The statement in verse 14 that the Pharisees are lovers of money, of what we'll develop in just a few moments. But that thought, that statement there by Luke, which provides us a way to interpret what's about to come, is also reaching back up into what's earlier in 16 about the entire discussion of material management. So again, just by brief rehearsal, um, to move forward this morning, Jesus has just finished in verse 1 through 13. He has finished explaining a parable about material management. So he gave an example in the text, as you could just briefly see there, about a shrewd money manager um, in order to instruct his disciples and the crowds present about, again, wise money management or material things beyond just simply financial money, um, but material gains of any kind. Um, He recommends that you mark the life of the shrewd business manager on the one hand because he is wisely a scoundrel. And so in one way where you watch his maneuvers, he is to be commended, right? On the one hand, he is commendable because of his actions. In the other hand, he is easily despised. So he gives you this story and this example to kind of draw out a larger principle using this scoundrel to explain, nonetheless, what is shrewd about him? What is calculating about him is important for us to consider. That is, the manager is commendable. Even though he's a scoundrel, he's commendable on this front. He acted in time based upon what he knew the future to hold. You could stop right there and just say, that's the point of the entire story of the business manager. That is a huge word to believers. And that's what's going to develop in the text as he speaks to disciples. Again, how many of us live such a manner of life in the moment to exclude what is going to come in the future? But not so with the one who is wise. Case in point, the scoundrel in the parable. He was sneaky and crafty. But the point is, nonetheless, he acted in time based upon what he knows the future to hold. And how many Christians confess their future in eternity but live in the moment as if that was not real. And he's saying... That is unwise. Because again, if you knew the future and you professed it, you confessed the future, that you know Christ is coming, then you would live in such a manner in the moment as to display that in the way that you live your life. In other words, the point of the parable about the money manager is as we face material items, our Lord is calling us Actions that reflect the wisdom we possess regarding the age that is to come. 
Again, if we go back to chapter 12, we look at it just briefly. We won't now. We did last week. But there is, at the end of chapter 12, that is the same warning. A call to be rich. Rich in a very particular way. Rich toward God. And he's using the manager here to say, those who know. Remember, the manager walked in and he got a pink slip. You're being fired. Okay, what's going to happen to me next? I know the future is I will be without a job. Therefore, before the future gets here, which is certain, I'm going to live in such a manner as that day approaches to be ready for it when it comes. He concludes the entire parable this way, and it serves us as we go forward. If you look at verse 13, this is, if we could say, the bottom line of the entire parable that was developed about wisdom and material gain. Wisdom and possessions. A life of discipleship to live as though you really do believe the future matters. Not just simply living a life of consumption in the moment as if it's not really going to happen. He gives the bottom line this, verse 13, the very last statement of the text. You cannot, this is just universally applicable, individuals, human beings, cannot serve God and money. So in case you missed the analysis of the manager, in case you missed the insight of how he is not to be commended for his behaviors, yet nonetheless he is to be commended for his, his shrewdness, his wisdom in acting as though he knew the future and he was wise in developing his path to get there. If you missed all of the pieces, the bottom line is this. No individual can serve money. That is, put in the idea of service, being uh, perhaps enslaved by, by way of idolatry. No one can just see money and gain and then say, I'm a servant of the Lord. He's saying, no one can do that. that that's what I'm getting at. Y- you will be enslaved to finances if you serve them. You see, the point of that that comes out of the further text this morning is one must serve God. And, and this, is, this is thought-worthy that we, that we meditate on this in our own lives. We'll see that in the conclusion of the sermon as well. But one must serve God as an end, not as a means. In other words, serving God is the gain itself. It's not to be a means whereby I pretend to serve or a means whereby I even do serve in a manner as to ensure momentary justification or momentary success in order to use service to gain something I really want. Rather, our Lord is drawing attention to the fact that serving God is the gain itself. He, not finances, not other emotional outcomes, not other idols, but rather he is what is most deeply and durably satisfying. And he's saying to the disciples, hear this and live wisely. But notice as we move to the text then, um, 
the contrasting life perspective that emerges here. After he has explained to us, that is, the disciples, and you see that in 16.1, he also said to the disciples, and that's the story of the, micro, or of, the, of the money management, of the material gains, of knowing you cannot serve God and serve money. You must serve God as an end, not a means. But then now Luke draws out, there is yet another life perspective at work here that we all need to be warned against. And he uses the Pharisees once again to draw our attention to it. Look at verse 14. Out of the last statement of 13, you cannot serve God and money. 14, the Pharisees. So again, we're still in this conversation about money. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So what did they hear? They heard all the things about living wisely in this age because it is passing away. You, you, you cannot serve God and serve money. But they heard it and they ridiculed him. Now, the, notice the intensity of where we're going here as we move towards crucifixion uh, in the days ahead. If you go back and just look at verse, uh, of chapter 15, verse 1, this is where this entire discourse began. Well, it began a little bit earlier, but this is where it really ramped up in chapter 15, verse 1. Notice, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees, this is where it zeroes in on this group and their responses to him, they began to grumble. And they didn't like what he was saying, didn't like what he was doing. Now it moves from grumbling. You go through the parable of the compassion of our Lord in seeking the lost and in calling to his son to draw near and then talking about being distant from material gain and not using people as a way to make yourself rich. And they hear this, and by the end of it, they begin to ridicule him. They are outright moving from, ah, oh, we don't like what this guy has to say, I'm whispering it over here, to incensed about what he has to say about money. If you look over a few conversations, you notice Jesus has performed a, a, a trifecta of sorts. <clears throat> Talking about the three things we still say in 20, what are we, 17? that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company, money, politics, and religion. <clears throat> and they are incensed at him talking about each one of them. Now, it's important as we move forward to gain why they are so incensed. Why are they ridiculing him? And it's not because, generally speaking, um, they're ridiculing him on just, you're silly. They're not here mad at what they hear. So then when it says all these things, after they heard them, they began ridiculing him. You have to get the picture here of what's taking place. They're not simply here making fun of him or calling him names. That would not be a right picture of what's going on in the preaching event of our Lord. Rather, they're ridiculing Jesus in front of the crowds for a very specific reason, which will come back in verse 16. They're ridiculing him in front of the crowds in order to discredit him as a legitimate authority of Scripture. They want to discredit him. In other words, they're here and they're hearing it. They're hearing the sermons. They're hearing the discussions. They're hearing the parables. And they're seeing the responses of the crowds. You know, when you're, when you're in a room and you can tell the temperature is changing and, and, and the, the, the momentum on your side is moving away. 
this is where they're at in seeing the response of his preaching ministry. And they have a lot at stake in staying in power. So it moves from, we could probably, you know, rebuff him with a few sarcastic comments. It didn't work. He got into the entire parable about the lost son. Then he moved into the issue of like, you know, hey, I know they're standing right there, but I'm going to talk to you about not loving money. And I think, all right, he's turning the tide in this moment. It moves from grumbling and complaining to outright ridiculing. Not for general reasons, because they just don't like his sandals, but very for specific reasons. We need to turn the tide and denounce him. Make sure that the crowds don't think he is in any way an actual authority of Scripture. You can hear it as they address the crowd, something along the lines of, Do you hear this guy? Listen to his parables. He is no theologian. Again, not speaking to Jesus directly, grumbling to the crowds, moving and ridiculing him. Listen to what he said about the two sons. Everybody knows that's not how it should have happened. What he did to that, the younger son, are you kidding me? This whole thing about money, you can't have money and serve God. Listen, he is no prophet of the Lord whatsoever. Again, a sense to regain control of the reactions of the crowds. But then even to ridicule Christ to his face. You don't get it. You're from Nazareth, right? Everyone knows Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. No one of distinction, no one of importance comes from such a backward and backwoods place. Take your seat. You are no prophet or teacher of the law. Now, this is what they're doing in front of the crowds both to the crowds directly and now to our Lord, ridiculing him. Remember why. Luke has already explained why the response of vehement hatred is coming out as they direct it to the crowds, as they try to discredit our Lord. Why are they so upset? Why are they trying to ridicule him? Look at verse 14. It's offered to us right there by an editorial comment from Luke. The reason why they're ridiculing him is because they're lovers of money. Now, what does that mean, that they're lovers of money? We'll tie it all together. They're here ridiculing the Son of God. You're no teacher. You're no prophet. You have no right to explain to us the law. Luke says, well, they're going to respond that way because they love money. What does that have to do? Think, well, verse 13, they cannot serve God legitimately and serve money. Here the Son of God explains and teaches with power and precision, and they hate him for it. Why? Because they love money. Do you see in the end the application is still the same to us? You cannot love God and love money. Whether it's in this situation with the Pharisees or not, 
Whether our response is so obvious as to ridicule the Lord as no real teacher of the word of God or not, the heart of the matter is still addressing the love of wealth and possessions. You might not respond this over the top, but just the statement is the same. Nonetheless, whether it's hidden in the heart or open ridicule, no individual can serve their life for gaining material elements and legitimately say they also serve and love God. Turn to Hebrews 13.5, just briefly for a second. I want to draw your attention because this comes up again. Paul also told Timothy, a young minister getting started, told him also to, to watch for an elder, to watch the love of money. Don't be in bondage to the love of money. Um, it brings disaster. So again, the the church continued in this perspective going forward from our Lord's own teaching. You cannot do both. You can't love me and love money. And, and and, And the gaining of wealth and the gaining of material elements begins to corrupt and draw your attention away in your pilgrim's path. Again, you might not be an outright denier of the Lord in ridiculing him, but the prick at the heart has to be the same. How much security do you draw from gaining elemental wealth, material possessions? So much so that if you're in Hebrews 13, um, the the apostle to the Hebrews brings up this mention. Now remember, we've gone through 12 full chapters of preaching about the supremacy of Christ above all earthly powers, about the kingdom that is to come. We're about to, if you look up into chapter 12, right before we get there, it says, let us be grateful, verse 28. Let us be a grateful people. Why? We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That goes right along with what our Lord is saying about the wise manager. Remember, you're receiving, we are receiving, as we're exhorted from Hebrews, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us act in present in such a manner as to display we do really, truly believe that. Then he moves forward in 13, this final exhortation to the church. There's many here, but I want to draw your attention just to its parallel of our sermon this morning, verse 5. This final exhortation, uh, exhortation, keep your life free from love of money. Why? Because you should be content instead. Content with what? with what you have, but I don't have money. I know. You have something greater to be content with. Be content with his promise. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What is the implication? Money will, money will come and money will go. Money will forsake you but his promise will not. What should my response be as a believer to the promise that is drawing in contentment to my life? I will never leave you, Adam. I will never leave you. I won't forsake you. The exhortation from the minister, verse six, we ought to be a confident people. Not built on money, 
but built on promise. But money helps. No, the Lord helps. Be a confident believer and say, the Lord, not money, is my helper. I will not fear. Why not? Well, because he's never going to leave me. And he's never going to forsake me. That puts in perspective the age that's passing away, I guess. What can the momentary, what can man, what can this life do to me? In light of the promise. Yet back in our text of Luke 16, on this issue of not being a lover of money, he draws out yet again what's so hideous about the Pharisees' love of money. Not only that they serve it and they are lovers of it, and this makes them speak to God. Since you can't serve money and serve God, as God speaks to them, what is their response? If they love God, they would humbly submit. If they love money, they will ridicule God in their presence. And that's what they do. They're ridiculing them. Why? Because they love money. Keep yourself free from loving money. But it's not just the love of money's possession that is the draw for the Pharisees. And perhaps it's not just the draw for us either. In other words, it's not just the draw that we possess the dollars in the wallet or just the draw that we're actually able to enjoy the items we've purchased. There's something even worse at stake in the love of money. It's not just the having of possessions and the using of them. There's something worse. What is it? Let me draw your attention to it. In verse 15, we'll see... They love the way they get their money. And and this is, like I said, this is worse than just possessing it. They love the way they get it. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, i.e. what they're about to do is predictable, heard all these things that Jesus had to say to them about money, and they predictably ridiculed him because they served money instead of God. And this was his response to them, verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. That's who you are. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, to unpack that just for a moment, we need to be clear that Jesus is not saying that whatever item, whatever thing men applaud or appreciate about each other or we celebrate as we see these things in one another's lives, he is not saying that any sense of applaud or appreciation of fellow men is an abomination to God. Again, lest we say, for what is exalted among men is an abomination to God, period. Then that would eliminate anything that's praiseworthy in another individual, anything that is noteworthy, anything that's worth marking and following after and imitating in the life of another individual is a sheer abomination to God. That would simply be to miss the meaning of the passage. To be clear, God does not abhor 
all praiseworthy things about men and women. Neither does he abhor our actions of acknowledging what is praiseworthy about men and women. That's not what he's saying. It's not a universal application. Rather, it's very specific. God hates a very specific thing that is being exalted before men. Look at the text very carefully with me. Let's piece it together. Again, lest we say generally, whatever we appreciate about one another is an abomination before God. Look very specifically at what he abhors. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Now, skip over to the next statement. For what is exalted. So far in the text, what is exalted? They are exalted. You see, they are then what is abominable before the sight of God. Do you see, they are the ones who are being exalted among men within the passage for what men and women perceive to be godliness in them. They are, as we have seen before, exalted among the populace, well appreciated by the common folk. And here we see, as lovers of money, they're rather well paid. For what? For virtues and godliness that are nothing more than a mirage. They're not true virtues. They're not truly godly people. And they are being exalted among men as though they are. This faux godliness, this pretend holiness, this external presentation is an abomination in the sight of God. In simple terms, they're faking it. You see, with this we must pause again. As disciples, as believers, Jesus is here very poignantly warning them. And through them, he is warning you against the sinful desire to be justified before your fellow men. He is warning each of us against pretending to be something we're not before our neighbor. Scratch for a moment whether it brings money and material gain and possessions or not. This is a very particularized situation where external forms of holiness and godliness are bringing you good wealth and are bringing you a place in society. That's not so much what takes place now in the year 2017. It can and it might and it may not. But if we took money completely right out of it, or religion out of it, we'd see, again, there are many motivating factors that each of us possess. That we have a desire to be justified before one another. Almost like a Pharisee in the sense, to the exclusion of worrying about if we're justified before God or not. Now, with these guys, they're lovers of money. 
That, that's their vice. That's their thing. That's what they're in service for. So in order to gain money of what they want, they justify themselves before men. They create a sense about them that will gain them wealth from others, power over people. They will be externally religious. And it works for them. It's a means to an end of gaining something they want. But again, you could insert in there about each and every one of us, there are multiple elements where we are seeking to gain something from others. Maybe it's simply we want to gain a certain level of reassurance. Intimacy in relationships. We want that end. Therefore, we present ourselves in a particular light. There's a void. Perhaps we do want control. So in order to have control over others, we manipulate the circumstances and pretend to be something we're not. Because that gets us our end of what we truly want, that sense of reassurance. Maybe it's independence. We want to be independent. Therefore, we don't want to be vulnerable. Therefore, we're not. That gets us our independence. It doesn't have to simply be money that we're in it for. Therefore, we pretend to be something we're not. The point is there's some other end. And therefore, the means of who we are is to manipulate others and present ourselves in a way that isn't true. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They do it religiously because they want money. But why do we? Tim Keller explains, what is this need of ours to be justified before others? The reason is because there is something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Again, looking in the text, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, not, verse 13, lovers of God. The reason why we do this is there's something, it doesn't have to be money, there's something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something, he continues, that is more important to our heart than God. There's something, he says, that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desire. Again, for the Pharisees, the inordinate and ungodly desire, the reason to pretend to be something you're not is because they love money and power over others. They love it to the exclusion of approval from God. But we would be naive to suggest that that is the only idol that causes people to pretend to be something they're not. Again, Keller adds, and I conclude with you this point. How do you identify what that thing is? What your something or your idol on your heart truly is, whereby you might forsake it and repent? Keller adds this. Well, start by finishing this statement. Quote, Life only has meaning if. 
Or he provides one more, quote, I only have worth as an individual if. What is our answer this morning? What would you conclude that statement with in all transparency? Again, Luke tells us what they would say. Well, they would say, life only has meaning if I have control over others, whereby I receive financial gain. So I act in accord to be something I'm not in order to get what I truly desire. But it doesn't start and stop there. Let me ask one last time. If there's nothing else commendable to you this morning than this thought alone, finish this statement. Life only has meaning if. Or I only have worth as an individual if. If the answer is, and I know it is daunting for us to introspectively look, but as we come to the Lord's table this morning, what better a question to be confronted with Life only has meaning if I know and am known by the living God. I only have worth as an individual as I know and am known by God. This is a question or an application of a life of a disciple who has come to know that reality. Finally, the last portion of our text. There's a million ways we could go, and it almost has its own standalone qualities of verse 16 through 17. But I think we'll handle it finally in our last comment of the passage. Remember, they're trying to say that Jesus is no true interpreter of the law. He doesn't really know it. He doesn't apply it well, doesn't discern what's truly to be taught. They're trying to convince people of that. So he goes right after them. Verse 16, really? The law and the prophets were until John. You know, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Again, if you knew the law and the prophets, what you've had access to all the way up until John, And since then, you've heard the clearest preaching and presentation of the good news of the gospel in the context of the kingdom. It's been preached to you. If you really knew the law and the prophets yourself, you do what everyone who truly discerns it does. That is, you wouldn't resist it. Notice in the passage of 16, you'd force your way into it. You would receive it. You'd let go of pretending to care. You'd let go of the leverage you hold over others to pretend to be something you're not if you really knew it yourself. You would do what every true repentance sinner does. You let go of everything and lay hold of it as the only thing. You would take it 
by force. But I must remind you, since you don't, it is easier for heaven and earth as elements to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It will stand against you in the end as it stands against you today. God knows your heart. Put down the pretension, put down the pretend games. If you hear the gospel clearly, you will, you'll lay everything aside and put your faith squarely upon Jesus Christ as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. For believers, we will yet again be nourished by him, strengthened by him after hearing such a word as we come to the table momentarily. Everyone who hears the gospel, reminded of their justification, not by works, not by pretending, repents and receives it. They force their way into it, knowing it is truly the only true substantive position. May we all in our own ways forsake pretending. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a few moments around your word to see how you know and you probe the depths of our heart. Whether it is material, financial gain, whether it is reputation, whether it is honor, whether it is control, whether it is independence, no matter what the psychological motivations and the spiritual motivations are behind our pretending, strip us bare yet again to remember, you know our heart. You see the depth of our essence. There is no pretending. Yeah, maybe in front of fellow men, but we won't be judged by them. We'll be judged by your word. We cannot pretend and get of that. Give us the strength to repent. Grant us the grace to admit our wrong, our sin, our abominable acts. Let us once again be nourished upon our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.